RPC Radio. Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you missed any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. recent past with all of the hype around crypto, Taxing Matters has looked at a couple of different aspects of the emerging crypto asset world, including the launch of CIFA, the Crypto Fraud and Asset Recovery Network, which will be linked in the show notes, and also to the rise of criminal proceedings in relation to crypto fraud. But today we thought we might do something different. It's not an exaggeration to say that there's been a huge increase in crypto fraud, with many financial institutions poised to deal with a wave of scams. But if you are caught up in a crypto fraud or crypto scam, what should you do? And how does the law help? Joining me today to discuss the steps you can take is Chris Whitehouse. Chris is a senior associate here at RPC, who is one of the major drivers between the CFR network and a member, like me, of RPC's Crypto Asset Practice Group. Chris has a science background and a more than theoretical understanding of the blockchain, plus a passion for all things crypto. So Chris, welcome back to Taxi Matters. Thanks, Alice. Delighted to be back. Let's launch right into it. There has been a crypto fraud. We've talked about these before. What are we doing next? The critical thing is to act quickly. If you discover that you have been a victim of a crypto fraud, be it a confidence trick, somebody swiped your password or anything like that, you really want to get lawyers and a blockchain tracing company on board as soon as possible. Now, there are two reasons for this. The first is a practical point. Bitcoin moves quickly after being stolen. It may be split up and transferred around to different addresses before ending up at various off-ramps where it's converted to fiat currency, such as an exchange. And this can happen in hours, and if not hours, certainly days. And the second reason is a legal issue, because there is a requirement for much of the relief that you might get from a court that it thinks you have acted quickly and are in, quote, hot pursuit of the assets. What has emerged in crypto case law to deal with misappropriated assets is a standard suite of relief that is sought from the court. If it is possible to trace the misappropriated crypto to a particular exchange, and that is first an interim proprietary injunction and a worldwide freezing order to prohibit the fraudsters and the exchange from disposing of or dealing with this traceable crypto. And the second is a banker's trust disclosure order against the particular exchange to compel it to disclose certain information about the account holders behind the address where the crypto has ended up. And what I can do by way of illustration is just talk through a particular case that illustrates what this looks like in practice. The particular case is called Daints and Persons Unknown. And just a quick footnote, a lot of crypto cases are brought against persons unknown. This is a reasonably recent innovation in UK law, where if you don't know the identity of the person who's defrauded you, the court will let you bring proceedings against persons unknown, provided they can be described with with sufficient particularity. 
So in this particular case, the claimant discovered a website called Matic Markets, which encouraged users to invest in Bitcoin through the website. And the claimant did this and was led to believe that her Bitcoin investments were doing very well and appreciating in value. But when she requested to withdraw the Bitcoin and the growth, things went silent. So the claimant instructed a blockchain tracing expert to investigate what happened. And that expert was able to trace the Bitcoin to a cryptocurrency end wallet in a well-known crypto exchange. And the claimant went to court and applied for that standard suite of relief that we've already discussed. Now, the judgment is interesting because it's got some helpful text that really emphasizes the need for victims of crypto fraud to act swiftly. And in this case, the claimant was commended for having done so. But even though they had done everything right in that regard, regrettably, a significant amount of the misappropriated crypto had been dissipated by the time of the hearing. It's sad in this case, although they did everything right, they still didn't get everything back. For completeness, I'd note that this case allowed service outside of the jurisdiction. Again, a requirement there is that the claimant's in hot pursuit. And it allowed for alternative service by email on both the website and by the exchange, given the urgency. So the court really will help you out in quite a big way if you're acting expeditiously. And also, that's a cue to remember to think beyond the obvious here. So from an alternative perspective of the criminal law, if there is UK criminal jurisdiction, which can be founded by things like the property is here or the harm occurred in the UK or the suspect is in the UK or the victim is in the UK, then you might be able to use the criminal law to assist you in that initial phase as well. So under the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, specifically Section 41, there is a power to make what's called a restraint order, which operates much like a freezing order, but specifically designed to protect assets against dissipation where there might well be a potential for a confiscation order at the end of criminal investigation and criminal proceedings. So there is this power on the criminal courts as well to make a restraint order where certain conditions are met, some of which include that there is an ongoing criminal investigation or there are ongoing criminal proceedings. It's a reasonably commonly used power by criminal investigators, or quote unquote, rather than private persons, where there is a criminal investigation in relation to crypto assets. So even as far back as 2018, this power was used to restrain about, at the time, 975,000 worth of crypto assets, which the court then ordered, as well as being restrained, to be converted into fiat currency and that to be restrained. So the court has quite broad powers under this provision. The interesting thing about this is it can also be used for private prosecution. So a private prosecutor confirmed by the court in a case called Virgin Media and Zinger in 2014 said that private prosecutors can also have access to these proceeds of crime powers. So you mentioned a couple of times there, Chris, blockchain tracing. How does that work and why is it important? Great question, Alice. Backing up, one of the key characteristic features of cryptocurrencies, it's all available in the blockchain. In contrast with tracing fiat currency transfers, where you have to identify the bank that it was transferred to, make a disclosure order, that may lead you to another bank and you gradually peel back the onion. On the blockchain, you can see exactly where your crypto has gone in real time, which has important implications for asset recovery. 
So that means that if your Bitcoin is misappropriated, you can see exactly where it has gone. Now, you can do this yourself. For example, in, in the case of Bitcoin, that there are websites like blockchain.com where you see what's happened. But what you really want to do is get an expert involved who has a lot of experience in interpreting the information you, you get on the blockchain. And they can add a lot of value because they can do things like trace between different blockchains and they can use various techniques to enrich the data that's available on the blockchain. For example, if it's transferred to a particular address, that's not tremendously helpful because you don't know much about it, but they can identify what kind of address it is by reference to other addresses that it's interacted with in the past in a technique called clustering. So because this is their bread and butter, you really want to get them involved to maximize the chance of recovering anything. They're also extremely good when fraudsters take measures to disguise what they're doing. I previously mentioned that it's rare that the Bitcoin will just carry on in a linear path. It's often atomized and bounces between different addresses. One bit of tech that fraudsters may use is something called a mixer, which essentially scrambles together the funds of multiple users to obfuscate the audit trail. An example of this is Tornado Cash, which operates on the Ethereum blockchain. And in very basic terms, what users can do is deposit sums of Ethereum that goes into a kind of black box, and then they can withdraw it at a later stage. So if person A, B, and C all pay into this box, person A might later withdraw person sees Ethereum at a later point. And what this process has done is broken on-chain link between the source and the destination address. One might feel pretty pessimistic about recovering crypto if fraudsters employ those kinds of measures, but there is a glimmer of hope in a recent BVI case called Chainswap and Persons Unknown, which involved Tornado Cash. So in this particular case, the blockchain tracing expert identified that there were 24 transfers for a stable coin called DAI in a relatively short time window. And then less than 24 hours later, there were 24 transfers out of the same amount, minus a small commission payment that went to a fourth wallet. The blockchain expert's report concluded that it was more likely than not, given the number and the size of payments in and out of Tornado Cash and the relatively short time between those transfers, the inputs and outputs were linked. And the judge accepted that analysis and that Chainswap had a good arguable case on that point. So even if a mixer has been used, it's not necessarily the end of the story. And again, thinking from that different perspective, remember that the criminal law has been dealing with issues like this for years. If you think about classic money laundering, it is quite common that you have layering and integration as part of the process of cleaning the money. So the criminal law quite often looks to follow the trail of the asset through a number of different iterations and through a number of different types. So Proceeds of Crime Act provides that you can trace the funds into mixed accounts, into other forms of property, provided that you can show that train. And if you can continue showing that train, you can also change it into the hands of new persons, including persons who might be connected with the fraud. What you can't do is trace it into the hands of someone who is what we call a bona fide purchaser for value without notice. So basically someone who has actually genuinely bought whatever it is without knowing any of the fraud and without being party to it. But other than that, 
the Proceeds of Crime Act does allow you to continue that tracing exercise. And there are a number of ways that that can happen. There are a number of different accounting principles that can be used. Most commonly, it's first in, first out. So taking that example that Chris just talked about, where everyone puts A, B, and C put a coin into a box and then take it out again. It wouldn't matter for the purposes of criminal law which coin went where, provided you could show the linkage. If you can show the linkage between the fraud and the coin and the onward flow of funds, that would be enough for the criminal law. Again, it would involve quite a lot of technical expertise at this point because not only would you be needing the blockchain experts to trace the funds, you'd also at that point need forensic accounting services to prove that those funds in the hands of a new person were for the purposes of furthering their original fraud and remained with that taint. But if you could do that, again, the criminal law is likely to look to help. And indeed, that is what commonly happens with what we would call normal criminal investigations. They usually usually do have to trace through a number of different iterations of property. And so the police services in the UK in particular have quite a lot of experience of tracking things into cryptocurrencies and NFTs and then continuing that trail on. How else does the UK law look to acquire misappropriated funds? One possible option for which there's been no UK case law is something called a search order, which essentially allow you to access premises to preserve documents if you can demonstrate there's a risk of evidence being destroyed. Those orders, like freezing orders, are tough to get. How are they relevant to recovering stolen crypto assets? Well, backing up slightly and taking Bitcoin as an example, one of the core concepts behind Bitcoin are keys, of which you have two types, a private key and a public key. And they are roughly analogous to a PIN code and a bank account, respectively. So to transfer Bitcoin on the blockchain, you need to have your private key, i.e. your PIN code, and you need to know the public key of the recipient, i.e. their bank account. And with those two things, you can effect a, a transfer. Now, private keys are considerably longer than a PIN code, which is great because it makes them hard to guess. But it also means they're very, very difficult to remember. And in practice, one needs to store one's private key in some way, either in a specialized device called a hardware wallet or by simply writing it down in paper. And these two things are often referred to as cold wallets. You might also store a private key as a series of seed phrases, which are used to generate a private key. So if you find a piece of paper that says umbrella, coat rack, stars, moon, they might well be seed phrases for a private key. And this might be relevant if you identify the hacker and you want to examine their premises to see if you can seize any of these cold wallets. There's actually a recent Canadian case on precisely this point called Cicada 137 and Medjedovic, which is also known as the teenage hacker case. The judgment for it isn't out yet, but as I understand the facts, the particular hacker was outed, I think, because they used their user login one too many times. But anyway, their identity became known. So the plaintiff brought, without notice application, raided the hacker's residence. It turned out the hacker was a teenage maths whiz and acquired the cold storage wallet devices and the passcodes. A final thought on this particular thing is if you recover a cold wallet, that doesn't mean that the crypto is necessarily safe. And there are some comical stories of law enforcement getting this wrong in early days. The wallet will store the password, but if your hacker has another copy of their private key, they can still transfer their Bitcoin somewhere else. So what you actually need to do is use the private key to transfer the Bitcoin to somewhere safe to prevent the hacker being able to use it. 
As you just mentioned there, Chris, it's quite common for law enforcement officers to search and seize cryptocurrency. There are some notable examples, and everyone can think of headlines which have made global news of being the largest crypto seizure to date, which seems to be trumped about monthly. But in those cases, they are all law enforcement officers. Unfortunately, at this point, there is no power for an individual, particularly acting in a private prosecution capacity, to conduct any form of search other than through the civil jurisdiction. There is no criminal law way which you can affect those searches. So it would just be, as Chris described, going through the civil court process to obtain a search order. But it is quite common for authorities to search and to seize crypto assets. And if you are in a position where you have advised authorities of the results up to a certain point and they are able to take over an investigation, it may very well be that they will conduct a search under the powers that are available to them to search and seize those assets. So taking it forward a little bit, what about the next step? We've got as much information as we're going to get how do you enforce it? How do you get that crypto back, or at least its value? Well, that's an interesting question, and one that has not actually been developed in case law very much. To my knowledge, there's only one UK judgment actually dealing with crypto enforcement, which is the case of Iron Science, which featured the first ever third-party debt order relating to a cryptocurrency theft. A third-party debt order allows whoever is owed money to take it from whoever currently has the money. So in this particular case, which may be somewhat distinctive on its facts, the claimants successfully applied for a proprietary injunction and obtained freezing injunction and disclosure orders against Payward Limited, which is a subsidiary of the Kraken Exchange. The disclosure order led to Payward disclosing that the entity behind the relevant account was something called Miriam Corp. And the disclosure showed that there were a certain amount of cash and cryptocurrency in that account. Now, perhaps unusually, it emerged that actually there was a debt owed by Payward to Miriam Corp. And this led the High Court to make an interim third-party debt order, such that the claimant could recover from that debt what they'd lost in the fraud. In the absence of a response from Miriam Corp, that interim order was made final. But more broadly, the subject of enforcements against crypto assets is interesting. And unfortunately, I probably don't have time to do full justice to it here. But I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crypto judgments generally. So I'm sure there'll be further developments on it in due course. One final point that I should mention is that very soon, I understand a judgment will be handed down involving a stolen NFT, which is short for non-fungible token. And for those unaware, this is a kind of unique cryptographic token. So unlike Bitcoin, which is interchangeable, this is one of a kind. And you can think of them as essentially collectibles like trading cards. In this particular case, the founder of the organization, Women in Blockchain, Lavinia Osborne had two NFTs representing unique digital artworks that were removed without her consent from her digital wallet. Now, she worked with a blockchain tracer who were able to locate the NFTs in two separate wallets in the NFT platform OpenSea, and then applied to court and obtained an injunction to freeze those assets and reveal the identities of the account holders. And shortly afterwards, OpenSea actually halted the sale of those NFTs. So, what we've been talking about doesn't just apply to cryptocurrencies. It 
also extends to tracing and recovering NFTs as well. And the great thing about NFTs, unlike Bitcoin, which can be atomized and split up, you can't do that with an NFT. So your chances of recovering it intact are much increased. And that's true from the criminal law perspective as well, because of course, as soon as crypto became a thing, it became a matter which could be a realisable property, potentially. So the courts have long ago determined that for the Proceeds of Crime Act and the further purposes of confiscation orders following conviction, of course a crypto asset is part of the person's potential property pool. So when you look at the confiscation proceedings following a conviction, so of course it does need to have some form of criminal conviction, you can then start to look at, well, is this an asset which is part of their realisable property and part of the recoverable amount. Now, those are very carefully conscribed matters which are dealt with under the Proceeds of Crime Act, and I will not bore everyone by going into them. But it is a relevant consideration that the most difficult part of enforcement for a confiscation order under the Proceeds of Crime Act is how much. Because cryptocurrencies and NFTs fluctuate so wildly in value, it is very difficult to ascertain exactly how much is actually available. So one of the principles when you're looking at a confiscation order is that you have to ascertain how much property does the defendant actually have available to them for the purposes of confiscation order. If you don't pay a confiscation order within a specified period of time, you will receive a prison sentence in default. So it's incredibly important that there is a realistic snapshot of the person's actual property. And therein lies the problem. How much is the cryptocurrency worth with the volatile market? When do you take this value? Is it at the time that order is made? The crypto asset is acquired? Is it at the time that the person goes to pay the order? The courts have sidestepped this problem by requiring those crypto assets to be converted into fiat currency. And that is, in fact, what I spoke about earlier. The courts, when they go to restrain crypto assets, have often required that those assets be transferred into fiat currency to be preserved for the purpose of a confiscation order should a criminal investigation end in conviction. So that is a quick run through of the options available to a person who finds themselves part of a crypto scam. We mentioned at the start of this episode the incredible CFAR network. So, Chris, how's that going and what is on the CIFAR horizon? CIFAR has been doing well. We currently have around 1,250 members. We've had a number of events so far and and are looking to build on our early success by launching a number of foreign chapters. So watch this space for developments on that. And then on the events front, there are a number of things that we have in the pipeline. Our next big event, which we haven't announced yet, we're going to look precisely at enforcement. That is in the pipeline, and hopefully there'll be an announcement on that soon. We're also launching a CFAR Breakfast Club, where people can meet with a brief keynote speaker and chat about the crypto issues of the day. The first one of those is on the 1st of June, and at the time I speak, there are still a few tickets left if people fancy it. And then finally, we're trying to get some more webinar-based content out, and hopefully we'll have an announcement about that soon. But it's likely to deal with the topic of mixers. So building on what we've talked about here. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this week's episode. Thank you again, Chris, for joining us. You can find Chris through RPC's website and you can find CFAR on LinkedIn and through the show notes. If you have any questions for me or Chris or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald.
Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like texting matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks. <laughs>